0: Well, welcome to this special edition of the Encephalitis podcast, as it is Encephalitis Information Week, we wanted to talk about the theme of this year's campaign, which is measles, encephalitis and childhood vaccinations. This is a topic that we really wanted to cover because recent research has revealed that the uptake of measles, mumps and rubella or MMR vaccine in England has fallen to its lowest possible levels in a a decade and, indeed, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the World Health Organization declared that the UK had lost its measles free status. So the issue around childhood vaccinations is not restricted to the UK, of course. In July, the World Health Organization revealed that 25 million children globally missed out on one or more of their doses of the vaccine against diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis. That is the largest sustained decline in childhood vaccinations in approximately 30 years, according to the World Health Organization and UNICEF. Now, there are many reasons why this may be the cause, living in conflict areas where immunization access can be challenging, increased misinformation about vaccines and COVID-19 related issues, such as service and supply chain disruptions, among other possible reasons. During Encephalitis Information Week, we're urging parents and guardians to get informed about vaccines and double check that their children are up to date with their jabs. We know that there are a lot of parents or carers out there who are looking for more information about vaccinations or who may genuinely be hesitant about having their children vaccinated. And we hope that this podcast is going to go some way towards answering some of those questions that people may have. To help me with this topic, I have recruited a friend of the podcast, Professor Benedict Michael. Ben is a Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Liverpool, a Medical Research Council Clinician Scientist and Honorary Consultant Neurologist at the Walton Centre, also in Liverpool, and I'm very pleased to say he is Vice President of our Scientific Advisory Panel. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks for having me. Well, look, Ben, can we begin on this by talking about how much of your work as a neurologist and scientist is connected to vaccines and their production or dispensing?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. I wanted to start answering this by saying that I remember as a junior doctor, when a patient came into the hospital and they were sick and moribund and they had some sort of infection. When the consultant came to say, what do you think is going on with the patient? There were only two questions it was unforgivable not to have asked. Number one, where have they traveled? And number two, have they had all their vaccines? It's an absolutely critical part of determining someone's risk of having any infection, particularly encephalitis.
0: And for those um, listeners that aren't um, clear, what does Borobond mean?
1: Oh, I'm sorry, it's very sick. It's a, it's a medical fancy way of saying very sick. <laughs>
0: Okay, thank you. See, we learn something new every day on this podcast. But Ben, look, figures from the UK Health Security Agency earlier this year revealed that the uptake of MMR vaccine in England is is at an all-time low. Do you have any views on why you think that is?
1: Well, in honesty, it's probably multifactorial. I mean, I think there are systemic challenges we've had with COVID-19 in terms of staffing availability to roll out vaccine schedules. The big a necessary push on the COVID vaccine rollout, supply chain issues, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, and also probably social media has a part to play in the just capacity to disseminate misinformation. And certainly around vaccines, there's been no shortage of that online. And actually, particularly when it comes to me thinking about, you know, measles, actually going back for some time now, um, uh, which obviously fed into the covid vaccine rollout uh but was was present you know long before that
0: yeah so uh, i mean um, and measles mumps and rubella and that's what the mmr stands for are, are they still a threat and why
1: so that they are absolutely still a threat i mean they shouldn't be we should we should have the capacity to to eradicate them and it was back in the year 2000 in fact that the us was first uh, deemed to have effectively eradicated um measles um, but with the reduction in vaccines uptake um, we are seeing a resurgence particularly of measles mumps and rubella but of many other uh, vaccine preventable diseases um, and when we think about measles in particular the reason it's so important is it's so contagious it's a very highly contagious virus and it's estimated that people infect about 90 percent of the people they're in contact with whilst they have measles and you're infectious to other people four days before the rash even begins and for days after you've got the rash. So many people will be largely asymptomatic but yet have a very high chance of passing on that infection to their contacts.
0: Well, we know that some parents are genuinely hesitant about giving their children the MMR vaccine. Uh, They're worried about side effects. Just how safe is this vaccine for MMR?
1: So I think first things first, we have to be completely honest with the public when we discuss vaccines and vaccine safety. We all know that you're likely to get some side effects, sore arm, feel a bit flu-y for a couple of days, and that's normal. But when it comes to MMR, it's really important that we say that it's, there have been very, very large population-based studies that show there is no increased safety of having each vaccine separately. And, and uh, so combining it as the MMR actually saves know children and adults getting vaccinated from that flu-like illness and their arm make three times over um and increases the likelihood that we'll get high level population uptake because people will have attended just the one appointment rather than having to make multiple appointments so it's no more safe to separate the vaccines that that's that's been completely disproven the other thing that's been completely disproven was uh many of the listeners and viewers will recall the autism scandal um, and it has now been proven that the scientists that led that work uh, faked a lot of their findings. Their, their findings have been pulled from the journals that published them, uh, and they've lost their career as a, both a doctor and as a scientist for falsifying their evidence. And subsequently, very large population studies have shown in, the Europe, in Europe and the US, there is absolutely no proven link between the MMR vaccine and autism. So that's the first thing to say. Now, there is a very small risk that some younger children can have what we call a febrile seizure now that's when children get a fever and they have a one-off seizure it doesn't mean they've got epilepsy it's a one-off and it's very common with any infection and perhaps one in four thousand maybe even less children might have this um so it's very it's very very rare and i think we'll come on to talk about how likely it is that children would develop a serious complication much more serious than a single seizure if they were to get the infection as opposed to the vaccine.
0: Yeah, well, let, let's do that, Ben. You know, what complications can measles have on someone who is unvaccinated?
1: So it's estimated that if one is unvaccinated and get measles, one in five of those children are going to end up so sick they're in hospital. Now, it's not just the fever and the rash that people think about. Measles can also cause a severe infection of the lung, causing a pneumonia or a pneumonitis. Uh, and also in the very worst conditions, the virus can actually cause brain inflammation or encephalitis, the condition that, that I work on, of course. Um, and it can, measles can affect the brain in, in two ways. Once, uh, whilst you've got the active infection at the time you acquire it, causing this encephalitis, this brain inflammation, which manifests perhaps initially as more mild symptoms like headache, but rapidly progresses to seizures and coma. Or even once the child's recovered from the measles infection, typically in the region of five to 10 years later, what can happen is the virus or a mutant variant of that virus can reactivate within the child's nervous system and cause this condition, uh, which has got a very long name, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, or we'll call it SSPE for short. But this is a an inflammatory encephalitis off the whole of the brain, which is universally fatal. We have no treatments for it and no one has survived it. So measles is not a, a, an inconsiderable disease at all. It's a disease associated with significant complications for all of the body and particularly the brain.
0: Well, you, you spoke earlier, you mentioned about how contagious measles was, saying it would that a person who has measles could could infect, um, I think you said, 90% of the people that they come into contact with. I'd like to add a little bit more context. Um, We've obviously all just um, emerged, well, some people would argue we haven't yet emerged, but emerging or emerged from the recent pandemic. How contagious is measles then in comparison to, say, something like COVID-19?
1: Well, it's estimated that, and it obviously varies by population and by people's behavioural habits, Um, but it's estimated that the average person would infect perhaps two other people with COVID, whereas for measles, it's more like nine. So it's much, much more contagious. And as I say, it's contagious in this phase where actually people may have little in the way of symptoms. And, you know, when we compare it to COVID for that comparison, I think we all know people who, have got COVID and they can say, well, it was that family member or it was that work colleague or, you know, we've seen whole households or, or, you know, workplaces go down with with COVID. So if that only likely infects two people for every one person infected, think how fast measles spreads when it infects nine people. Because it's not just the nine that the first person infects, it's the nine that each of those people infects and the nine that each of those people infects. And you can see how it snowballs. You get this exponential growth. Of, of rapid community spread of infection.
0: Wow. So there's a r- real risk of, of a measles
1: outbreak then amongst groups of unvaccinated people. Yes, and uh, with with both measles and with mumps, we have seen those outbreaks. And in fact, in Liverpool, where I work, uh, several years ago, a lot of, in fact, way before the pandemic, we had a, a real outbreak of, of mumps um, it, because of this lack of uptake of the MMR vaccine. Uh, which caused you know serious disease, and we had uh, lots of children and, and young adults in our hospital uh, with that.
0: Yeah, well, look how you know. Moving on to what people can do about this, how how can people check if if their children are fully vaccinated or, or whether they need another another dose? How how can parents and guardians of children um, you know check this?
1: Well, if you just want to read about it, there's lots of very helpful information on the government's um, HSA website. That's the health uh, safety agency uh, for for England. Um, But in addition to that, uh, the simplest thing to do is just speak to your GP. Even when you've moved GPs, your GP records should move with you, and they should be able to accurately go back and say whether or not you've had those immunizations.
0: Okay great so so people can just go contact their general physician, their family doctor um, and ask them um, if they can check their child's records and I, I suspect um, you know e- even just phoning up the reception at uh, your GPS for example, they, they'd be able to to do that. Um, you know I was thinking this morning we were recording some assets for information week but you know I've had measles. Um, so I, I, I've i had lots of things, actually. I've had mumps, I've had chicken pox. I'm like, you know, I'm ticking all the boxes. Um, but I have had measles. So I suspect I never had um, the MMR as a child. Um, and I've got two questions for you, uh, personal to me, but I think other people um, in my situation would probably be wondering as well. So am I protected now against measles, having had the illness?
1: Not necessarily. So everyone's different, and it all depends about your risk of exposure. Um, So the safest thing to do is is have a chat either with your family care physician, or in fact, um, the the travel clinics, when you think about your likelihood of exposure, the travel clinics are very, very helpful. And they can often provide telephone or nurse led advice um, and they have access to an excellent, almost real time database of where outbreaks are. So you can think about, where you are where you're where you might be traveling to in the in the coming uh months and years um but also it relates to your own immune status and your own other health conditions and your own risk so uh it's worth having those personalized discussions with with your physician or with the travel clinic
0: Okay, well that that was going to be that links into part of my second question because like you I travel a lot, sometimes to areas where there are measles outbreaks and I've always wondered whether I or travelers like me should be should be immunized so I might I might follow up on that I don't I don't want it again, certainly not now. Um, Look, it's not just the MMR vaccine, um, which has a lower uptake in recent times. The World Health Organization is reporting that the percentage of children who received doses of the vaccine against diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis have also fallen, with estimates that 235 million children missed out on one or more doses in 2021. Why is this? Why do you think this is?
1: Well, I mean, this is a huge challenge because it's not it's clearly not one thing that's the problem. You know, we have issues with getting uh, the vaccines out. We have an issue that comes with regards to the production of vaccines, making it cheaper and more affordable, uh, improving supply chains and actually just improving health infrastructure as well. So we can actually deliver those vaccines on the ground. For some vaccines, it's about developing vaccines which are more stable and don't require. For example, the COVID mRNA vaccines. People will know about how they had to be stored very cold uh, for, for many of, of the mRNA vaccines. So it's about finding ways where we can actually get vaccine out that's usable at the point where it lands. Um, and uh, we've clearly had conflicts. There's obviously, you know, many conflicts ongoing around the world, um, not least of all uh, in Ukraine, but across many many regions, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, which just Absolutely make it very, very difficult to to roll out these important preventative programs and then, of course, once we've got the vaccine (laughs) made distributed and in a position to deliver it, we need to have adequate uptake from the Community and that's where the vaccine hesitancy issue comes in Um, and. You know, I think it's it's incumbent on all of us to make sure that we 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 do well, like we're doing now, trying to get out accurate, up to date information to people, so that they they can be well informed and make their own decisions, without falling down the potential rabbit hole of you know the YouTube videos and Facebook channels etc. that can very rapidly spread what can seem like legitimate information, but actually often is misinformation, disinformation, and and you know really scaremongering.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's a really important question. You know, I mean, I've seen some, some of this stuff and, and, um, you know, if, if I wasn't doing the job that I'm doing and working with the patients like you that I'm, I'm working with and specializing in a a condition um, that is vaccine preventable uh, encephalitis, I've watched some of this stuff. And honestly, some of it is so persuasive. Um, I genuinely um, find some of it quite, believable if if I didn't know better Um, so I can completely understand why some people um, uh, actually believe what they're what they're hearing and seeing but you talked a minute ago about um, low to middle income countries they seem to be um, the hardest hit you know what can be done to address that issue is and and is that true are they the hardest hit
1: they're the hardest hit in many ways you know in part due to the reasons I mentioned before and you know it's really it's really tragic in so many cases but i mean, i would like to share one really positive story about vaccine rollout for for children childhood immunization in the context of encephalitis you and i first started doing clinical research into encephalitis um a lot of us were studying this uh, the main virus in in southeast asia which is this virus called japanese encephalitis virus or, or JEV. And the the wards were full of children with encephalitis, with with J-E-V. And since the rollout of the vaccine programme in lots of areas of Southeast Asia, particularly in India, uh, we've actually seen it's now impossible to recruit patients to studies to study the disease anymore because there just aren't the children coming in with it anymore. So, you know, that's a really positive story which shows that actually, even in these challenging low and middle income settings, with the right drive uh, which comes you know top down from policy initiatives from the world health organization through to engagement with governments uh, through to engagement with industry uh, to make locally produced vaccines possible uh, and that's certainly been a huge success story in India uh, and then through to non-governmental organizations when it comes to information and third sector partners and wh- and also when it comes to distribution so I mean there there can be and there have been huge success stories and in fact Measles was on track to be a huge success story. So that's why it's so tragic to see the declining rates in vaccination mm-hmm. and us losing our status as, as, as you know, adequately uh, herd immune f- uh, from this. Because the last thing any of us want to see is a resurgence of these diseases, which, like polio, really ought to be a thing of the past.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. um I mean, I think we're, you know, we're we've often. Um, we often say at the Encephalitis Society, you know, our gold standard is prevention. You know, if we can vaccine prevent some of these causes of encephalitis, then that that has to be, you know, our primary aim. Um, what do you think the outcome is going to be if we if we're unable to close this gap on childhood immunisation?
1: I think one of the reasons we, we're not closing the gap is because people haven't realised what the consequences would be you know, these are conditions that we didn't grow up tip. I know you had measles, so you're not a good example, but for my, I think most people listening or watching, they, they probably didn't grow up knowing someone that had these sorts of infections like measles, mumps and rubella. Um, and, y- you know, through that, I think there, there's risk of a complacency where we, we, we don't hear about these conditions often enough because we don't see them often enough. And then vaccine uptake declines ever further and we'll end up where we were before vaccines were were coming out uh, and that was a condition where lots of children childhood life expectancy used to be incredibly low and it wasn't just malnourishment and poor housing it was these vaccine preventable childhood uh, infectious diseases um and and that you know going back to those times is clearly not not what any of us want to see
0: yeah one of the things that that sticks with me from um from that time was um kind of uh, um I I remember the bedroom that I was in I remember my mum and I remember the family doctor and I just remember this real deep sense of of kind of darkness and gloom I knew that this was serious um and I'd been told um that I wasn't to do any reading whatsoever that my eyes were a real concern and, and of course I read all week I had Enid Blyton under the under the Bed covers and uh and a torch so every time I heard my mum coming I'd like switch it all off and like pretend I wasn't but but like what stuck with me from from that time was actually this real deep sense of concern and I, I was like oh my god this is really bad something bad is going to happen to me and I and the sense of relief when actually I started getting a bit better um uh, you know so I think you're right when you say that people have have forgotten, you know, we're not experiencing this. And people do think of measles as this kind of almost harmless childhood infection. It really isn't, which is, of course, what Encephalitis Information Week this week is all about. Um, But look, we're um, at the end of uh, this podcast, Ben. Is there anything else that you want to say about um, measles, about encephalitis or about the Encephalitis Society before before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I'm, you know, really, really glad that you've chosen, that the Encephalitis Society has chosen this, to focus on this, uh, because it is such a huge issue, uh, which, you know, hasn't had enough, you know, voices from, from the side of fact, um, really trying to get out the information about how serious this condition can be and how vaccine preventable it is. And I bet a lot of people listening wouldn't have known that measles causes encephalitis. So I hope that, you know, in some small way, this this podcast has helped, you know, get a bit of accurate information out there. Um, so, uh, you know, lastly, just you know, keep up the good work, keep doing everything you, the encephalitis society is doing, you know, spreading spreading the good news about what can be done to to prevent, uh, you know, what can otherwise be a devastating condition. And, you know, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to work with the society over the years. And um, yeah, here's to many more
0: yeah oh well thanks Ben do you know what we couldn't do it without you guys though it's all our scientists and our doctors that we work with um and all the voluntary hours you know we have to remind people that all of you guys that are involved with us you do this all in your own time you're all volunteers and we're deeply grateful to you guys so thanks so much for joining me today Ben um yeah for those that are listening so for those that are listening the encephalitis society remains at your service if you need any information or support our teams are there for you please don't forget that go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online with any of the team we hope you've enjoyed the podcast and as always if you can support our um, award-winning and life-saving work then we'd be extremely grateful grateful you can do that at encephalitis.info forward slash donate and lastly if you do want more accurate and trusted information on encephalitis and on measles following this podcast please go to encephalitis.info forward slash measles